Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. I created Data Mesh Radio to be a resource for Data Mesh practitioners the world over. This is a weekly summary episode where I share a bit about the upcoming week's episodes and give you an extended summary for any interviews or panels that will be released during that week. It's designed to help you decide what episodes you might want to spend the full time to listen to, as interview episodes and panels are typically more than one hour long. In general, if you were running up against any challenges with Data Mesh, I'm here to help. I started a company around doing just that, Data Mesh Understanding. So get in touch if I can be of help. Check out our free community programs and things like that as well. Programming notes for the week of September 3rd, 2023. As stated previously, we are on a new episode hiatus. This is week two of three, uh, as I'm still recovering from a rather severe illness, didn't want to rush back and kind of burn myself out. For this week, I picked another three episodes that I think people should listen to and reflect on from, you know, kind of days gone by. We're at episode 250 plus now, and so I, I picked ones from 200 and below. So, and all well, we're still doing our roundtables every Thursday with uh, Jean-Georges Perrin if people want to join. So I really recommend those. Those are getting um, bigger and bigger and they're, they're quite fun. So for this week, we've got the first episode of the re-release out on Monday is episode 177, which is Jamax Corner number 14, The Data Can't Protect Itself. This is an incredibly important concept to data mesh. It's it's really interesting the more that you you listen to her in this episode, because data can be changed without people understanding or knowing or, you know, believing or, or really being able to see the changes. And the way that we do data historically, people can't really trust that those hidden changes haven't happened. So data mesh gives us a framework. It gives us this, this, ability to have a true proper chain of of evidence you know kind of that they have in the law enforcement uh world of you can trust that this was handled with care and moved through and that it was only augmented or handled by owners right and this helps people to actually trust data you know unless there are safe true safeguards and guardians, both people and technology-wise, will people really rely on data or merely maybe use it? I think this is really important, and this is a core reason why Jamak even started really looking at, at a lot of the approaches that she suggests in Data Mesh. So Wednesday's re-release is episode 133, which is Nitty Gritty from the Deployment Committee. Which crucial learnings on driving buy-in and data product discovery with Amara Gafour from ThoughtWorks. So Amara is, you know, a good buddy. 
Um, that's why I asked her to be uh, lead a panel on business intelligence and data mesh a while back. So this is a fun and relaxed conversation, but there's a whole lot of really good information that you can take from this, you know, and what she's learned being at the heart of large scale data mesh implementation. You know, and based on the name, you can probably guess correctly that you'll be learning a lot about driving buy-in and data product discovery, which are true, crucial, but somewhat undercovered topics relative to data mesh content. It's something that people always request, but there's not a ton of specifics. So I think this is is helpful from that perspective. Friday's re-release is episode 150, Three Years In, Data Mesh at eDreams. Small data products, consumer burden, and iterating to success, oh my. This is with Carlos Saona at eDreams Odigio. This is another fun conversation, but what sticks out about this one is a lot of it is pretty contrarian to the way a lot of people are implementing data mesh, or it's a very different perspective, very different angle. So, you know, Carlos shared about when Jamak's first article came out, he was like, okay, this seems like a really great approach. Let's go forward. And he tried to find a bunch of people to talk to about it and, you know, for about the first 15 months and he didn't really find anyone. So he just kind of went in his own direction, you know, leading the organization as, as the chief architect. And so um, there's a lot of choices and approaches that are kind of non-standard. Now, does that mean incorrect? No. But it's really interesting to look at, should this be the way that we approach data mesh or should it not? You know, I think there's a ton of learnings to really take from this and and see if you think that it would work for you. Um, And it was kind of funny just at the, you know, when he did a, a presentation after doing data mesh for three years and I reached out, he was like, oh, there's a giant community. So, you know, I think going out there and talking to people like Carlos is going to be one of the most helpful ways to decide what's going to work at your organization and what's not. So with that, I'll, I'll stop talking and I'll kick it to, you know, the intro for Jamak's episode and the extended summaries for Amaro's and uh, Carlos's episodes. This episode is part of a longer conversation, but jumps right into something I think is fundamental to Jamak's thesis around data in general, but something that can easily be overlooked or might get lost. When data is being copied, it should be owned by a data product. You might have to listen two to three times to this episode, you know, what she's really saying for it to sink in. Certainly happened for me. I had to listen to a few times because there's so many layers and there's so much kind of depth within this concept. Data is often essentially a floating entity in most organizations. It exists as is, as in the data, or maybe you might interface it via a data model or or whatever. And people who stumble across that data don't know its provenance, but also they can freely modify that data often with someone else coming along after and discovering what might be the result of somebody modifying that data 
instead of what that first person came upon. And you don't really know. And and I know we talk about this with lineage, but there's a deeper layer to it. You know, you could think about this with like a, a shared Google Doc or Google Sheet without the revision history. So you just don't really know, has this been touched? Is, is this exactly what I actually think it is? So in Data Mesh, we don't directly interface with the data, not just because, you know, that cleanup burden of what is this? You know, can I actually use it? That that shouldn't be on the data consumer. And we do want to consume from a product so we know what we get. But the other aspect is if data is ever was only ever owned by a data product or as a direct result of somebody consuming from that and you know because you were the one that consumed from it, it significantly increases the trust. And not just the trust for the consumer, but also for the producer, because it's much harder to misuse the data if it has to come directly from the source. It adds so much more resilience to the system when you say that you can only interface with something that is designed around protecting and keeping the data clean and keeping it with as high of contacts as possible. And, you know, consumers can trust what they are accessing precisely because the data has been moved only inside of a data product. I think this is really hard to articulate. So I would guess this episode will be one of those kind of aha episodes five years from now where it just keeps revealing itself more and more because I think there are so many layers to this. So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode and I think it will be uh, deceptively a lot of great information and kind of impact on people's journeys. Extended summary for episode 133, nitty gritty from the deployment committee, crucial learnings on driving buy-in and data product discovery, an interview with Amara Gafoor. So in this episode, I interviewed Amara, who's a principal business analyst at ThoughtWorks, who's been working on a few client projects related to data mesh, including one for well over a year. Before jumping in, it's important to note that much of Amara's learnings come from an implementation in a 100K plus employee company split into 21 high-level domains. So the definition of domain in this episode revolves around that context of a very large business unit, not a two-pizza team size subdomain like JGP talked about in a recent episode. So Amara started off the conversation sharing about how she and her team kind of quote-unquote had it all laid out for the plan to standardize how they'd bring each domain up to speed on data mesh, from the introduction of new ways of working to being that domain being ready to participate in the data mesh implementation in just six weeks, right? It was it's going to be the same approach for each domain. And then reality struck. Each domain is different and much like trying to explain the benefits of or, or implementation of data mesh, a single approach for all audience just didn't work well. So they adapted. Every domain is unique and requires its own unique approach to make it, implementing data mesh in that domain work. 
There are, of course, commonalities, right? If there weren't any, this just wouldn't work as well. But each of the 13, 14 domains that are a part of the data mesh implementation thus far has had its own unique challenges. So Amara shared some stories about working with different stakeholders. Often the first stakeholder they encountered was an IT sponsor for the domain itself, either an IT leader in the domain or an IT counterpart for the domain. This persona typically wanted to bring, you know, Amara and team in and welcome them with open arms. And while they were often bought in on data mesh, there was a push, you know, from IT and often the business side to only speak with IT. So Amara and team had to work to get permission to also include the business people in the conversations about their proposed data transformation, because without the business support and knowledge, your data mesh implementation is likely to fail. How many episodes have said tie your data strategy to your business strategy, but the business people often have what they need to some degree, or at least believe they have what they need via shadow IT. So why would they want to give that up? It's an emotional response to be asked to give up what you have for the greater good in the long term. There is a concept of, of immediate returns. You know, you build a dashboard and there is immediate potential value versus the mid to longer term returns from things like building your data platform and building out your data governance capabilities. Amara has seen many times there is not any incentive to wait and focus on the mid to long term results. If your funding this year is based on results this year, or if, especially if your funding next quarter is based on your results from this quarter, focusing on your results two to three years out is often, it doesn't feel like an option. They won't get rewarded for that long-term work, and most domains don't even have the capabilities to do said mid to long-term high-value work. But to do data mesh right, we need to incentivize that patience and incentivize and provide the capabilities to do things right for the long haul instead of just the short-term, low-stakes wins, right? Easier said than done, but really look how to do that. According to Amara, as part of a successful data mesh implementation, there is the technical stream, you know, the team topologies meaning of a work stream, but you must also work on the operational stream at the same time and the product stream too. If you don't look to change domains KPIs to align their operational work to data mesh, quote unquote, you won't prioritize it. You cannot prioritize it. You need to put also put a metric into place to measure progress around your data mesh implementation. It doesn't even have to be a great measure. It's a way to start the conversation. There is too much of a hang up in data mesh around trying to get things perfect the first time. Get it to done, measure it, test it, Iterate on it, move forward, keep doing that. Don't let perfect be the enemy of done and or good. Don't fall to bike shedding. The current or the cost of change and the cost of failure in data historically has been very, very high, right? A lot of guests have said this as well. We have new economic models with cloud that make that no longer true. We have the privilege to be able to fail. Mara said that, you know, quote unquote, the privilege to be able to fail. Failure wasn't really an option historically, but it's such a foreign concept to many in data, it will cause some to push back. What do you mean I don't have to get it perfect? They've lacked the psychological safety and the guardrails and, and the protection to fail. And 
we have to understand why they are pushing back and worth work with them to understand that failure in a highly agile environment is is incremental learning. It's not necessarily a bad thing. So another thing that Amaro talked about was after picking the two most obvious use cases in a domain, again, the very large business unit concept of a domain, she believes it will reveal five to six of the foundational source-aligned data uh, or source-oriented data products of the domain that will be able to power most use cases. So start building the MVP of those source-aligned data products because they will support other use cases down the road as well. She talked about kind of when you zoom out, when you're in the the weeds on a new use case, you'll go, oh, I need these additional uh, source-aligned data products. And then if you kind of zoom out, you go, you know what? I just need to extend one that already exists by a little bit and it will support what I need it to do. So you don't have to keep doing the same work over and over. On personas, Mara laid out a few that she and her team have run into. Listen to the episode if you want a full rundown. But we discussed the, you know, the IT sponsor, the business owner, the sideline watcher, the yes to your face, <laughs> the product owners, and the data lake or other historical data paradigm builders. Right? For Amara, a lot of the data mesh literature and conversations feel like they say there are new roles and therefore there isn't room for many existing data roles, like the data warehouse or data lake builders or maintainers. But she thinks that's not a great idea, and I agree, Jamak agrees, right? These are the subject matter experts in how the domain's data flows and systems actually work and can be excellent guides to bringing more people into the data fold as they themselves pick up new skills. Trying to hire your way to a data mesh is not a great idea. No one is redundant. Everyone has valuable knowledge. So I think we can really look at hey, just because somebody's been doing data warehouse, as long as they're open to learning new ways of working, they're going to be extremely valuable for you. You need to make your IT sponsor successful in in order for your data mesh implementation to go broad in that domain. So that means learning the and communicating in the language of the business according to Amaro. That might mean you have to deal with the horror of PowerPoint presentations. And as many guests have said, the selling points and implementation details of data mesh don't stick with the broader audience the first time. Repetition, reframing, holding of hands, etc. You won't succeed if you try to just message once. Be prepared to repeat yourself and then repeat yourself again. It's crucial to understand the three streams of work model, according to Amara. The operating stream is you know, quote unquote, building the cadence for IT and business to communicate in order to prioritize. This helps identify which data products will be built. The product stream is identifying the actual data products that need to be built, as in what are the scope and the boundaries. The technical stream is about building the data product and the platform needs. Each of the three streams should have equal weighting. This is another way to think about your MVP thin slice. You must encapsulate some of each capability, each stream. As previous guests have also noted, many domains build data products that benefit themselves first in Amara's experience. This obviously makes it easier because there is more buy-in and no cross-domain communication and prioritization friction. 
But that is just the initial stages of a data mesh implementation, still in that phase one before you go, before going truly broad. More domains are moving to support use cases across domains. So phase two might be coming up soon for where Amara is working with her, her clients. Amara does not believe source-oriented data products, ones that are difficult to understand outside the domain, should be made freely available on the mesh. They should not be made available to business users within the domains or to other domains in general. And her reasoning is, is quite sound. If the data products are difficult to understand, it's easy to misuse them and they are more likely to change with the source systems. So breaking changes, you know, inversions are more common. Other domains can consume the information from those source-oriented, source-aligned data products in you know, designed consumer-oriented data products instead of directly from source-oriented data products. Data scientists are a bit of another story as they are data literate enough to do some spelunking, but even then, data scientists beware. This is a controversial approach, but I think it's important to dig into. I think it's something to really think about because what we've been hearing across a lot of guests, and it's been an undercurrent in a lot of these, these conversations, it's really hard for the domains to share their data in such a way that people can kind of get a sense of what's going on in the domain rather than what's specific to a use case. So this also lowers the burden on the domains that they don't have to fully document and fully create this amazing data product that's going to be useful for, for other domains. So it's not where we want to be in the long run. In the short term, I think it's something people should consider. Do I think it's, it's the right answer? No. Do I think it's the wrong answer? No. Do I think it's probably right for a, a fair swath of people? Yeah, I think it might be. I think it's something to really look at. Amara is also seeing an interesting pattern relative to source-oriented data products. When you really start to map out a lot of the obvious use cases for a domain, and remember a size of the domain in this context is quite large, it might seem like you need a large number of source-oriented data products. But when you zoom out further, it becomes clear that you can actually shrink those into a much smaller number at five to six data products mentioned earlier for that domain, right? Each incremental thing feels like you need more, but you really, when you zoom out and really look at it from a big picture perspective, you might only have five to six in a domain of 5,000 plus people, right? The way things are evolving at Amer uh, Amara's current client is three layers relative to data products and use cases. For each use case, there are one or more, typically two, it sounds like, consumer-oriented data products. Then each consumer-oriented data product is derived from or powered by typically three to four source data products. So the domains are, are able to create multiple consumer-oriented data products off the same set of those five to six uh, source-aligned data products. But it's still early days and will, and will likely evolve further. Again, I think this is something that hasn't come up before, so this might only be um, specific to, to her, her big client, but it's something to really think about. Kind of wrapping up, encourage people to think business need first instead of data first, you know, according to Amara. Think about what business outcome you are trying to achieve and then work backwards to what data you need to address that business need. 
If we are just sharing information without intention, it can lead to misuse of data. Will people really understand it? Will it be compliant use? So Sarita Bax had really good thoughts on this in her episode as well. Don't make things that you don't need yet. Extended summary for episode 150, three years in, data mesh at eDreams, small data products, consumer burden, and iterating to success, oh my, interview with Carlos Saona. So in this episode, I interviewed Carlos, who's the chief architect at eDreams Odigio, which is a company in the travel space. As a caveat before jumping in, Carlos believes it's too hard to say their experience or learnings will apply to everyone or that he necessarily recommends anything they have done specifically, but he has learned a lot of very interesting things to date. Keep that perspective in mind when listening to this summary. I think that is good for everybody, is that we don't lock on to any one pattern, but that we take in kind of the broad perspective of what everybody's doing and what's working, and then try and figure out what might work for you. So when Carlos and team were looking at building out three years ago how to tackle their growing data challenges. They were looking at requests for proposals, you know, RFPs from a number of data consultancies around building out a data lake, but they just weren't convinced it would work. Then they ran across Schmack's first data mesh article and decided to give it a try themselves. Until more recently, Carlos and team, they weren't aware of the mass upswing and hype and buzz around data mesh. So their implementation is kind of especially interesting because it wasn't really influenced by other implementations. It was almost kind of one of those uncontacted kind of groups of people that uh, were doing things their own way. So I think it's, it's an interesting study to look at. When they were starting out, Carlos said they didn't want to create that single overarching approach. It was very much about finding how to do data mesh incrementally. They started use case by use case and built it out organically, including the design principles and rules. They knew they couldn't start with a single data model, for instance, but it was quite challenging iterating towards that standard data model, right? A lot of people get kind of bogged down around data modeling. And I think no matter what you do, it's going to be hard. But if you try and do it all from the, the beginning, you're not leaving yourself open this space to learn and iterate. I think that's important to really look at. When choosing their initial use cases to try for data mesh, uh, Carlos and team had some specific criteria. They rejected anything that needed a very quick turnaround because it wouldn't let them have enough time or space to try things, learn, and iterate. I think this is really important. There's a lot of use cases that you'll come across where the consumer is saying, I need this now, I need this now, I need this now. That's not good for your early data mesh implementation because you don't have the space to to learn around this. You don't have the space to kind of try out a lot of different things. They did plan ahead though by creating foreign keys to data products that didn't exist to make interoperability down the road when they would exist much easier. And they were very honest with stakeholders about what early participation meant. and what it didn't mean. 
That way, it was clear what benefits stakeholders could actually expect and that there wasn't the overpromise under deliver kind of thing that, that was hold, hanging over their heads. According to Carlos, while they had executive support and sponsorship for Data Mesh, that wasn't enough to move forward with confidence at the start. They needed to have a few key stakeholders that were engaged as well and wanted to participate. It was okay to have some stakeholders not engaged, but just informed of what they were trying to do with Data Mesh. You don't have to win everyone over before starting. Five things Carlos thinks others embarking on a Data Mesh journey should really take from, you know, eDreams' learnings. Number one, it's okay to not have everyone really bought in or especially engaged up front, but they will have to participate eventually. Make their eventual participation inevitable. And he gave a little bit around how they, they helped around or they set themselves up for that. Number two, really emphasize what you are learning in your early journey, not that you have it figured out. And factor in learning when doing estimations and promises, right? Again, circling back, you need to set the expectations that this isn't fully baked and that we're going to learn together and we're going to find the value together. Number three, don't try to design, design your data model from the beginning. You need to learn via iteration. You will start to find your standards to make it easy to design new data products, but you will have to find them. Number four, when treating data as a first-class citizen, it's important to understand that will take additional time. Reserve the domain team's time to create and maintain their data quanta. This is something that a lot of people don't do. They just say, you now own this, and that doesn't go well. Number five, let the use cases drive you forward and show you where to go, right? There's a lot of, of places where people are trying to say, oh, we should go here, we should go here, we should go here within each, each organization doing data mesh versus the use cases that start to emerge, you'll kind of start to see more and more patterns and you can look for more of those as you learn how to do those better and better. And then you can figure out how you're going to do ones that don't really fit the mold um, as you're going along. Carlos's philosophy is, you know, within reason, push as much of the burden onto the data consumer as you can. Obviously, we don't want consumers doing the data cleansing work. That's been one of the key issues with the data lake, right? But the costs of consumption should fall on the data consumers as they are the ones deriving the most benefit. So eDreams makes the consumers own stitching data products together for their queries and makes them pay for the consumption. This minimizes the costs, including maintenance costs, to producers. One very interesting and somewhat unique, at least as far as I've seen, approach is how truly small Carlos and team's data quanta are. Thus far, they have really adhered to the concept that each data quantum should only be about sharing a single type of domain event and really nothing more in it. That again makes for lower complexity and maintenance costs for data producers. They are considering you know, changes with some upcoming data products. So that might change a little bit, but I think it's a really interesting approach to look at that, you know, your data quanta are small and they are only around a single uh, domain event. Carlos believes, and I exceedingly strongly agree, it is not feasible for your documentation for your data quanta to be fully self-describing. You can't know someone else's context. 
You need to write good documentation, obviously, so people can still understand what the data product is and what it's trying to share. But if you do not have the knowledge of the domain, it would be a considerable amount of effort, essentially impossible to do it right, to fully explain the domain and how it works in the documentation of each data product, right? So let's unpack that a little bit. It's really, really way too high of a bar to say, you need to make this so that this is understandable to absolutely everybody that could be coming and, and looking at this data product. That's just not feasible. It's when people try to say, you know, everything should be self-describing. That's, that's not feasible, right? We need to get real about how far we can go and the Pareto principle, right? If I do 20% of the work on the documentation and get 80% of the value, where do we start to say, let's cut this off, right? Okay, I have to get this so absolutely everyone in the organization could understand everything about the domain and the data product itself just from the documentation. No, you'd rather have, if they really need to know, that they go and they ask somebody and they learn how the domain works. So getting to know how other domains exactly work is outside the scope of the data mesh, really. At the start of their journey, the data team was in control of all the use cases, who was consuming and who was producing, according to Carlos, right? But as they've gone wider and there is a self-serve model for data consumers, more and more of the use cases are directly between the producers and consumers. Or, you know, the consumers are consuming without much interaction with producers as well, if they already know the domain. It could become an issue with people trying to understand data from lots of different domains just for the sake of understanding, you know, that kind of spelunking thing that I've talked about a lot, but it hasn't been an issue so far, right? People are kind of staying in their lanes as to, okay, I'm trying to figure this thing out versus I'm going to go and see all the data that, that exists. So to date, Carlos hasn't seen many problems around versioning either. They thought that would they would have many more issues with versioning than they have, which Carlos believes is from keeping their data products as small as possible and using just you know single domain events for each data product. When they have had versioning, the retention window for the data has been relatively short, so the versioning has been relatively simple to move to the newer version. And because most people are getting their data from source-aligned data products, right, that there isn't that kind of downstream stitching for a lot of things, changes have a smaller blast radius. They won't affect data products that are, you know, downstream of a downstream of a downstream data product, right? People understand who their consumers are. Domain events have been enough for their data quanta because their main stakeholder has been machine learning, right? Um, you don't need a super, super complicated thing for uh, machine learning. They're now working on a different kind of data quanta for consumers, such as business intelligence. And they plan to include more governed versioning there, but thus far it hasn't really been an issue. One of the biggest challenges early on, according to Carlos, was that domains didn't really feel the ownership over the data they shared. So in, to increase the feeling of ownership, they first looked for ways for producing domains to use their own data, as many other guests have mentioned this, right? Second, they tried to maximize additional consumers of data products by looking for use cases. You know, that led to faster feedback loops if there was a problem. There were more eyes on the data product. So producers discovered issues sooner, which again is especially helpful if they're consuming their own data. 
And third, the platform team helped identify issues that might be in the system or in the data platform pipeline process, right? If there was data loss, there is automation to help identify if it is on the platform side. If it's not on the platform side, then it is an issue with the domain. That one automation has led to a lot less time searching for the cause of data loss rather than fixing data loss, right? You have have to spend a whole lot of time to figure out what's causing this data loss instead of fixing it. That's obviously frustrating. A few other tidbits to wrap up on. When launching a new data product, there must be a settling period. Consumers must understand that things are subject to change while the producer really figures things out. You want to avoid duplicating data. Of course, everybody says this, but you really want to avoid duplicating business logic. Finally, data products should have customized SLAs based on use cases. You know, start from the standard easy to reach SLAs, right? But you don't need to optimize for everything. Let the needs drive those changes in SLAs from the kind of standard set. Hopefully it sounds like some awesome episodes for you coming up this week. As a reminder, feel free to get in touch if I might be useful in your data mesh journey helping quite a few organizations and introducing people to each other, plus doing some roundtables. Check out datameshunderstanding.com for more information. I hope you have a great rest of your day and week. Now on to that fun, funky little outro music.